This week, we talk with the Grammy Award-winning artist R.A.C. about how he got into blockchain and decentralized finance, the state of the music industry, and the centralization of intermediaries, which results in unfair treatment of artists, and what kinds of technologies might be able to help. Welcome to talking to the Cosmos people. I know that you're a total ETH head. You're a musician by day and DeFi DJ by night, so... I did this uh, like interview for CoinDesk recently, and there was like a video thing, and they put me like in the title card or whatever said "Yield Farmer and Musician." I guess that's who I am now. Are you open about talking about your yield farming yields? How's the harvest been this season? The harvest has been good. You know, it's it's interesting. Like again, like talking about this stuff in in retrospect because. It's you look at the rates now and they're not, I mean, they're fine, but they're not like we we had like kind of a moment this summer where the yields were kind of insane. And I mean, there was like a very wide spectrum of like and anything from very high quality projects from governance tokens to like the worst kind of, you know, degen YOLO into, you know, like unaudited, like smart contracts. So there's a lot of that. And for the most part, I, I just like I was having fun with it. And I think that's like there, there was a lot of criticism around it. And maybe a lot of it was fair. But if you were sensible and did everything in moderation, you know, knowing the risks and like you were OK with it, it was pretty fun, you know, to just like be in like group chats with your friends and be like, I'm yellowing into, you know, shroom that finance or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like 20,000 API right now, you know, probably not a high quality project, but, you know, yellow, I guess. But then there's like, you know, I'd say on the other end of the spectrum, there's maybe the the Uniswaps, you know, it's maybe something more sensible, like 40 to 50 percent, which is still quite high. Uh, it's probably come down a little bit where it's a known project. It's well respected in the community. And and, you know, the the uh, the risk of rug pulling was a little bit <laughs> less, I guess. I saw you tweet about the uh, Kirby rug pulling. I don't have like any kind of insider information about this, but but basically like early on with Wi-Fi, that, that project, Andre Akranje uh, project that sort of took the, the ETH world by storm. I just happened to be in the curve pool when he gave Wi-Fi to all these, uh, all these people that were in the curve pool. So I, I just happened to be the right place, right time. And, and I, I earned some Wi-Fi and I was like, this, this is crazy. I didn't expect this, you know? And, uh, I got a little more involved in in the in the governance side of it, and you know, it was it was just like a very small group of people. Like the price hadn't even gone crazy or anything like that. It was just this kind of interesting new project where he gave away the entire token supply in a matter of like two weeks or something. So it was kind of a, a thing. And then this one character started popping up on Twitter called Kirby, and he was like, or "Learn to Yearn" or whatever, and he was like really enthusiastic about it and. You know, crypto Twitter is kind of fun. There's a lot of memes and stuff. And it was just kind of a, a fun thing with with Kirby. And it was like a lot of inside jokes. And, you know, th- there wasn't really any real intent behind it. It was it was just he was uh, uh, an, like yet another Anon crypto Twitter account uh, of somebody shilling wi- Wi-Fi, basically. And so I sort of engaged with uh, with him or her. I don't know who it is, but like pr- pretty loosely. And there was always talk of doing some event at some point, you know, post COVID and where maybe I'd perform or, you know, some, something like that. I actually had that thought. Yeah. Then he started to get like a lot of momentum on Twitter, I guess, and, and started to get a lot of attention. And suddenly people were, they 
they started promoting a lot of NFTs and suddenly there was like, I think he was making something like 70 ETH a week just on selling NFTs. And it was just on his own, on his own, like selling NFTs on Rarible. And I think that's where the idea of Off Blue came from, where Ooh. it was like, oh, this is really going somewhere. But in, in the back of my mind, it was like, this is sort of like an anon crypto Twitter account, like that's making NFTs. It was a bit of a stretch for me for, for it to like get as big as it did. So then it kind of turned into off blue and because like maybe that was just trying to legitimize it and make it into more of an interesting project. And at that point, I was mostly disengaged with it. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't really even follow off blue or anything like that. It seemed kind of it had maybe run its course, I guess. But a, a lot of people dove into it. Maybe a rug pull isn't isn't totally fair. But yeah, there was some shady stuff happening and and it wasn't really clear like i don't know people were sort of like buying into this and it's like through nfts and it was it was a sketchy at best i guess so maybe there was kind of one thing that that's important to mention it's like before really everything kind of fell apart there was this project called emn or eminence that i guess andre he didn't like release it but people found the contract for it and a whole bunch of people, like I think like something like $15 million jumped into this unaudited account. There was people like, oh, you just, you have to like, you know, literally on, a, on an Etherscan level, like going into the contract and like trying to mess with it. And it turns out it was just a stable coin. There wasn't supposed to be like price speculation around it. So a whole bunch of people lost a lot of money. Somebody figured out, it's not a hack, but they were able to game it and sort of drain the account of like all the money of like $15 million. And they actually gave, sent half of it back to Andre specifically. So there, there was like all this drama, like suddenly people were blaming him for everything. Meanwhile, Andre's like asleep. He's like in South Africa, like <laughs> asleep, like not knowing anything that's happening. He wakes up, there's been this like $15 million theft. He has nothing to do with it. He just like, it was like some test thing he was building that people found and there were death threats. It got really dark. And unfortunately, I think like Andre is sort of like not, really engaged with Twitter anymore because this really kind of took a dark turn. And, and Kirby, this whole time, he's a spokesperson for Wi-Fi, you know, he's, and he's trying to, he's basically telling people like how to ape into this contract that is not tested, is not supposed to be live. It's really not supposed to, like people are not supposed to touch this stuff. And he's like pushing people to, to get into it. And I think he really took like a, that was sort of the last straw. I can't imagine it being helpful to Andre. Right. In, in the internal dev channels for, for Wi-Fi, uh, some people like kind of, I think Kirby kind of stepped down from there. And, and then he was sort of focused on the off blue stuff. And but by then, I think kind of the reputation, his reputation had kind of been hurt at that point. So, uh, again, it, I think it's at the time it seemed frivolous and, and fun. But then, you know, a lot of people lost a lot of money and then it became a lot more serious. It was bound to happen, you know. So are people still in Wi-Fi or have people forgotten about that and moved on to the next exciting thing? Wi-Fi's pristine reputation has maybe been damaged a little bit, but I, I still think it's a super high quality project. I mean, the quality of devs that are involved there are some of the best, I, I, in my view, and they're doing a lot of interesting things. I, I think there's there's maybe an argument to be made that their value prop is basically based on yield farming. So like it'll sort of fluctuate with yield farming. So um, like, for example, like the, one of the most prominent vaults that they have is only earning maybe 4% right now. So it's really not, it's not the 100 plus percent that it was like in the summer where everybody was like, Wi-Fi is amazing. It's the best thing on earth. Nothing really changed about the project. The high, It's still high quality. It's more just the rates. About the rates, you know, who, who sets them? So it's it's based on market demand, really. And again, I'm not 
I mean, I'm technical, but not like, I'm not a dev or anything like that. So if, uh, if I'm wrong about these things, don't, don't quote me on it. But basically like these vaults are way to, are, are sort of like these ways to automate all this other stuff that's happening in DeFi. So it's, it, it's sort of like a robo advisor. Like if you compare it to sort of the traditional world, like a wealth front or I'm trying to think of like, maybe there's like another, there's a couple of other like robo advisors that will like auto invest your money. That's sort of like the approach that they were taking where it's mm-hmm. these contracts that automate other contracts. So it's sort of this other layer. And, but when the underlying contracts aren't that profitable, the obviously the overarching one isn't going to be that profitable either. That's basically it. It got a lot of hype for what is kind of a, a, a boring, like technical thing. <laughs> Yeah, but there's nuances between each of the vaults, right? Apparently, Andre has done some interesting things with with governance. Do you know what that is? The the way that I think about like Wi-Fi and the thing that really set it apart was kind of what I would refer to a, a bit earlier. So it's like when he gave away the entire supply, the, the entire token supply, the entire ownership of the protocol in a matter of two weeks. So, you know, typically like, you know, when people are giving away these governance tokens, it's like over the course of years and years and years. And here's everything. I don't think he even got that many out of it. So he's not even like in terms of like actual real governance, I don't think he even actually has a huge part of it. I mean, he he is sort of a primary dev, but he's not, you know, he's not this like massive whale. So I guess like a lot of people talked about that as like a fair launch. I mean, there's maybe some arguments to be made against that, but but I think it was an interesting approach where you're just giving the token away essentially to people that are engaged with that type of activity. And he basically gave it to yield farmers. It was like, hey, you guys understand this. You should be the governance for this new protocol that I'm building. So I think that was that was a really interesting idea versus like getting VC money, you know, like the, all that. What does the yeah. governance for Wi-Fi do? What's it responsible for? It's approving like, you know, new vaults, any kind of new strategy. They're creating sort of like a, an infrastructure for any where anybody can participate. So like if you create a new strategy that's profitable, that's better than what exists, you get a percentage of the fee. So there's sort of like mm-hmm. this competitive nature of these devs like competing to get come up with the best strategy, the most efficient strategy. And you you get like, I think it's like half a percent or something like that. But it's it can be if you have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in there, it's pretty significant. So so it's it's creating a really in- interesting kind of open source playing field, I guess, for people to participate, I guess. That's sort of my loose understanding of it. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say that I'm like super deep in the weeds. I find myself early on involved and I'd like to see the project succeed, but it's, I, I feel like I'm sort of on the, on the edge, just kind of watching it all unfold, I guess. I want to hear your coming into cryptocurrency story. Yeah, I would never imagined like talking directly to you. I started listening to REC, what, in it's like 2012 or something, you know, and I never thought that, okay, there's, there's an intersection between music and crypto. It's, it's okay. It's maybe not the most obvious thing, but like crypto is such a cross section of my interests. And so like w- when I was younger, I was really into computers. I ran like my own Linux machines, you know, like when I was like 13 and like, so I, I've always been interested in open source, always been interested in, in building my own computers, you know, things like that. So I guess my point is I, I've always been somewhat technical and it's, it's something that I greatly enjoy. And within that context, you know, even producing, you know, a lot of recording and producing is very technical and computer based. So it, like it all kind of is connected. And I feel like I had probably heard about Bitcoin, you know, like in 2013, 2014. I think a lot of people maybe saw an article here or there, but I didn't really engage with it until I probably like late 2016. As soon as I started reading into it, like 
everybody always is like, oh, I read the white papers. Like, did you really read the white paper? Uh, I kind of, you know, I, I don't know. But like, I, I definitely did not read the white paper. I've probably read some random article about it. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. What I found interesting about it wasn't really the financial side of it, because that's not my background, it was actually the the digital scarcity aspect of it. Because my entire career, I mean, really, my, my industry has sort of been ravaged by the lack of scarcity, of digital scarcity. So we have sort of infinite copies of music that are, you know, and we're, we sort of have this inability to price it because it's just freely, you can make as many copies of, of it as you want, which is great on many levels, but bad on others. So, so like I, I thought, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. We have digital scarcity now. That's a new invention. I, I didn't know that we had that, you know? So uh, I think maybe just on a computer science level, it's like, oh, this is cool. And around the same time, I bought some Bitcoin and classic like on Coinbase is like, what's Ethereum? Like, let me look, you know, let me look into this. Then I, I stumbled on a video of Italic uh, talking about very high level Ethereum stuff. It wasn't like a deep technical dive, but I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's sort of generalizing that, you know, sort of consensus mechanism to basically anything and basically making it programmable. And it was like, oh, this is fascinating. Like, this is really interesting. You know, I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know about scaling or any of the issues that sort of plague it now, but but I, I was fascinated by this idea of of sort of like shared infrastructure, a system that we all share, like a data layer, basically like a metadata layer that we all share, that no single party controls. That is like the idea of having open source software built on top of it. This sort of like public good type of thing that would solve so many issues in in my industry, and that's that's sort of where it started. It was like. Oh, this is fascinating. Like, this is really interesting. I, my first thought was like, is anybody making music applications on top of this? Because I think it's really interesting. Not not just for the currency aspect of it, but but like again for that that sort of open source shared infrastructure layer. When I get into the music industry, I can easily spend like four hours talking about the problems of the music industry, and like that can get pretty dull and boring. It's a very broken system that is sort of riddled with intermediaries. And, and so like this, this was like a really obvious solution to that for me. So that's sort of my introduction in, into that world, I guess. Can you give us a TLDR of the problems of the music industry? Because for, for most of the people listening, they're not aware of them. I pay 10 bucks a month for Spotify. I get all the music I want. What's wrong? From a consumer layer, it's an amazing experience, right? you know, 10 or 15 bucks a month, you get access to most of the music ever created. Like, I think that's an amazing thing. What a time to be alive where you can do that. Unfortunately, the business side of, of how that works, it's not just Spotify. It's sort of like the underlying industry is built on a model that doesn't work for the internet. I mean, there was already sort of toxic before the internet and it sort of became 20 times worse with the internet. There's three companies, there's Universal, Warner, and Sony. And they control about 80% of music, prior music. And, and most of the music that makes money in today's age is sort of put out by them. So they, they're a big player. So it's effectively a monopoly. And we've had this monopoly basically since, you know, since the 50s. And they take a huge cut of your, your profit. There's a lot of nuance to this. Maybe uh, like just to give you sort of the, the overarching version of it is like artists on average make about, I think, 12% of all income generated. So pretty low amount, especially when you're creating the stuff that people are actually consuming, right? It's a very low percentage. 
and you're also paid less, maybe sometimes like two years later. So the whole like system is sort of stacked against you. It's been that way for a really long time. And there's no, the industry, on the industry level, there's no incentive to change because it's sort of like efficient enough that they make money and they have enough artists that will just want to suffer and do it that it just keeps the turnover, you know, kind of moving along and there's no incentive to change it. We're kind of stuck in this, this impasse where our artists don't really have, it's sort of a binary choice where it's either you participate or you don't. And if you do participate, you sort of have to accept their terms. It's just a really unfortunate situation. I mean, there's so many nuances. There's ways to sort of get around this and there's ways to go independent. But again, general, generally speaking, the odds are stacked against you. What is the primary leverage these three companies have? Is it control over distribution channels, marketing? Like what, what can't they be, what function do they perform that can't be easily replaced or repeated? They have their hands in everything. They control everything. They control distribution. They control marketing. They control basically any, any point. They've just been sort of the incumbent player for so long that, um, for example, like I, I've been signed to a major label. I, I've gone through that system and I saw how the, how it works. And it's amazing. Like it's, it's, they have so much leverage. It's crazy. It's, it's a well-oiled machine for them. And so, so for example, like, you know, every commercial that you see on TV or, or online or whatever, most of the music is licensed by a major label. It's very rare to be for an independent artist to get a placement like that. So it's like they can, at every step of the way, they sort of control a, a very large portion of it. And, and they can sort of, sometimes when I talk about this stuff, it, it sounds a little bit like, tinfoil hat you know what i mean like it's like it's like it sounds like this big conspiracy but it, it's just sort of like the situation we're in and we've been in this for like a really long time i don't think it's that much of a stretch to understand that like if if you control 80 percent of music that you have some power you know and they just do so they have their hands in literally every aspect of the business and they can and they use that to their advantage and what's the artist's alternative if anything the artist's alternative really right now is to either go independent which you can do that. And there are a couple examples that are successful at doing that. But it's to be successful in that way is an anomaly. It's not a given. It's actually arguably much harder. You can carve out like sort of a middle class existence by being an independent artist. If you want to play in the big leagues, basically, you have to play the game. You have to go through the, the big players. And, you know, I wish that through the Internet, we, we had sort of broken through that. And we had a couple moments where we almost got there. But in the end, the, the incumbent players kind of prevailed. So, so for example, like Spotify, again, like amazing consumer experience, no complaints there. I'm a Spotify user. Like, I think it's fantastic. Those three labels own, I think, 30 or 40% of Spotify. So, and they get sort of special privileges that comes with being a major stakeholder. They get to set the rates, like things like that. And we also have a lot of like kind of freemium models that don't really make sense for music. And there's so many layers. I feel like I could talk about any aspects of the music industry and sort of unpack of like why it doesn't work. I guess like as an independent artist, pretty limited options. You, you have like people that have really good intentions, but have no power at all. People often talk about sort of the, the long tail. I forget what the exact numbers are, but I think the long tail as in like the non-major label artists, I think are fighting over like a very small percentage, maybe a 10, a five to 10% of the income. So it's like you have everybody at the bottom, like fighting over like pennies. And then you have all the top players collecting all the, all the profit. It's just not a great system, I guess. So I want to segue into what you're trying to do with RAC coin. 
the REC token. Uh, what I, this is all very new, by the way. So this is sort of a new project of mine. And I actually got a lot of, in, funny because we were talking about DeFi and, and all that, but I, I got a lot of inspiration from that. So the whole approach uh, with the REC token, it's a couple of things, but it, it's basically like a rewards program. I, I'm calling it a community token. I'm basically giving it to people that are a part of my community that are sort of my super fans. It's it's sort of a token for the the fan club of the future, if you think about it that way, which a lot of them are not crypto natives. You know, I'm taking it slow. I'm just trying to you know basically see what people are, are engaging with, you know, what what, what they want to do. And, and uh, the, the whole idea was basically to find people that were the most engaged as in. So for me, it's like people on my that um, subscribe to my Twitch channel or subscribe to my Patreon or uh, buy or bought merch or, you know, basically everybody that bought a song on Bandcamp, you know, dating back to 2009, you know, uh, basically like giving people tokens that didn't do it for the tokens, but that participated that, you know, helped me along the way. It's like, let, let me give them a piece of ownership in this community and let's try to, through this loose sense of ownership that let's try to build something for ourselves. The whole thinking was, you know, if we're seeing like DeFi projects or really just crypto in general, like all all these different platforms. And when you own this token, there's a sense of stickiness to it, right? Like you, you feel like you're a part of it. And sometimes that manifests itself a bit negatively in tribalism and and all that. And, and by the way, like I I am kind of an ETH head, but, but like, I I definitely believe in like sort of a multi-chain world. Like I I, want to see, I want to see this whole space flourish. Like, I don't think Ethereum is like the answer to everything. That would be kind of ridiculous, you know? Yeah, that's kind of the Cosmos reason. Right, it, it is true. Like, we should really be all working together instead of yeah. in, in fight. Whatever. I mean, I, I think a lot of people share that view. It's maybe just a vocal minority that get maximalist about it. You know, I saw something happening where it was like this level of cohesion and this level of sort of community building around like financial applications. And I'm like, okay, that's awesome. But like, that's kind of a bland subject, you know? for the mainstream and when you apply that to something cultural uh and it may be small i don't know but like that idea of applying a token that like glue to a community around something cultural i i was like this could be really interesting it's not financial in nature and it's not trying to be like going to the moon you know it's not like that uh but it's it's more about earning something for participating again it's not really meant to be a currency but it's sort of a representation of your contributions to it it can be a lot of things. And that's primarily what I'm, I'm stoked to discover. And I'm also like, I'm not going to sit here and say that I have it all figured out or anything like that. I, I, what my, my real point was just to get it out the door, get it into the hands of people that I care about and that, that care about the project and be like, okay, we have this now. What do we do? What, what do we want? What do we care about? You know? And that's, that's sort of where we're at. We're like two weeks into this. Are there particular kinds of, collaboration you're hoping this will engender or particular things you think people might do with yeah i mean i think i think a lot of it is coming from internally so it's like for example like we we play a lot of games so as as part of like my twitch uh, channel like sometimes we play games like after i play some music or you know i I could see a situation where you win x tokens for for winning a game or like or or if somebody contributes like a funny gif in the discord you can tip them tokens or whatever or there are certain permissions that you get by having tokens. Some things that I want to do is like, I want to tokenize uh, ad space on my Twitch because uh, my Twitch is public, obviously. Uh, so anything as small as like a shout out, you know, to like a full blown sponsorship could be used with those tokens. 
basically anything that is sort of community related, uh, I feel like you could kind of throw it into the mix. I don't love using this example, but it's it kind of works. Where it's like sort of like airline miles, or it's kind of like or like Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Like it's it's like just this club token. It's this clubhouse token, you know, where it's for the people involved. It's not meant to be for like the other people. I mean, th- th- I think there is a lot of space to to build something that's more, you know, obviously more Web three related, where maybe some NFT related stuff where you stake X amount of tokens, get some NFTs. Like there, there's room to play with that. But I, I think at this point, I'm I'm really just it's sort of just an internal little thing that we're we're playing with and going to keep iterating on it to see what people actually want to use it for really is sort of my intent. So it's it's kind of a test trial phase of just seeing what people do with it. If someone wanted to pay you for a concert, could they use RAC tokens to pay you? So the whole approach is like, okay, like let's keep adding utility to it, right? So that could be a utility for it where it's like, yeah, maybe it's like for a concert I mean, that, that's like maybe on the extreme side of it. I'd have to like figure that out. But like, I, I think the, the idea of sort of redeeming tokens for for something that is valuable to, to them c- could be interesting. Yeah, there's maybe some logistics stuff that I like have to like figure out. I'm trying to take the emphasis off from the financial side of it, because that's sort of uh, something that I've I've been thinking about. There's so many tokens that are sort of financial in nature, right? I mean, a lot of them are. And there's always going to be a side of it that is financial. I really sort of want to emphasize all the other applications because a token is just a token. It can be just a community thing. You know, it doesn't have to be a currency, perhaps, you know, if that makes sense. I actually wonder in the future if this could evolve in a really interesting way. So this would be an evolution of personal tokens, right? People, people had launched like their own personal labor tokens in the past, you know, circa 2018. And they're launching this thing and you're able to redeem like one hour of their time, for example. And this to me, you know, based on seeing what's sort of emerging this year with what you're doing, there's another artist, she's called Coin Artist, what what she's doing with Coin. And then there's 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 someone else. He's he's June. He used to work at Coindesk and now he's he's doing his own cool meetup things. And so so all of these different like crypto influencers or whatever you want to call them, they're kind of launching their own tokens and you're able to do various things with them. I think that's really cool, but at the same time, you could extend that. If you're saying that, okay, my my brand is my name, personal brand, and now I could like tokenize it, but then like what what happens if in the future we could do some some like real cool thing with a top level domain or something with a handshake protocol. And then now suddenly you could do peer-to-peer transfer of content and people could pay you in your token to redeem like a little packet of Hollywood, the song, in a really peer-to-peer way. This is just what I've been thinking about lately. It's, it's super interesting. And to your point, I, th- I think this is sort of maybe an emergent category uh, that I think some people are calling social tokens. Like those three that you m- mentioned are, are definitely examples of that. But all of them are, are pretty different, right? Cherry, for example, like that that's one of them. Or there's maybe, uh, I think uh, Kerman is also another one where it's like sort of selling time or Alex is an, is another one. So there's sort of like all these different tokens. What I like about it is there's sort of just a lot of experimentation and there's not really like a defined thing. We're sort of getting lumped into social tokens. And like, I think, I feel like my token is pretty different than some of the others and others are like very different than like mine, obviously. I like that that level of experimentation. And I think at some point in time, a standard will sort of emerge 
and then maybe more people will start to adopt it and it'll become a little more accepted. It sort of bleeds some a, a bit into securities laws. It gets a little bit tricky. There's the regulatory framework of this gets is, is a little murky. So I think that's something to be a little cautious about. Like I see a broader trend, which is there's this, I guess people are calling it like the creator economy, which is that we're moving from this, you know, platform centric thing where it's like we're all on, you know, Instagram and and or whatever. And I mean, I'm sure we'll keep using these platforms, but we're starting to funnel people more into like Patreon. I mean, it's a bit taboo, but like OnlyFans is another example of that. It's a paid content type of website. And a lot of people are using it in various different ways. I feel like that is sort of a general direction that we're going to be headed where it's creator centric. And that to me in general is like the way to go. And I think tokens are just yet another extension of that that are really interesting. I, I don't know what the right model is for for a lot of these like like personal tokens or or, or some of that. Like I guess to some extent there, there's been a lot of criticism around some personal tokens because it's like, well, how do you trust them? There's a lot of sort of fair criticism around it. I think maybe I've alluded some of that because I sort of have a long career. There's a bit of trust there already, but I think you could still make an argument that it's, it's you know it's clearly not decentralized. Well, often decentralization is just a convenient theater used to uh, abdicate responsibilities. Yes. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm loving all the experimentation. I guess that's sort of what I was trying to say. (laughs) I wanted to touch back quickly, circle back to the concept of digital scarcity. So a token is a certain kind of digital scarcity, but at least to me, it's a different kind than when we talk about, you know, the kind of digital or, or analog scarcity music distribution maybe once had compared to what it has now. Are you interested in avenues for also applying digital scarcity to music distribution itself? Or do you think that's kind of a a done deal? I I have this theory. This is sort of new. I think we've been pricing music incorrectly for like 20 years. I I think we've been pricing music as a reaction to Napster. And we've been pricing it far too low. And because of that, we've fallen into this equilibrium where the labels and the powers that be are making enough where they're like happy with it. But the people that are creating the content are sort of the ones footing the bill, really. So we're not able to capture our, our true value. And this is sort of what, why I'm saying that I don't think we've been valuing properly. It's because like, if the artists aren't capturing that value, then I don't think we're doing it correctly. So the way that I've been thinking about it is like right now with like Spotify, for example, like to like we didn't even I don't even know what the actual rate is per, per play. I count it per million plays that to that that goes to show you like how we actually calculate this stuff. So a million plays pre-distribution, pre-everything is about $4,500. So that's 1 million people make about $4,500. So it's pretty low, I, I think, for, for the amount of people that are getting value out of something. like that, That's incredibly low. I think we've been pricing it as if it's supposed to reach 6 billion people. And it just doesn't, you know, because how could it? You know, every song... So it's sort of like every song is priced to fail. So... To your point about scarcity, I think there's something to be done here in terms of maybe it's creating artificial scarcity. Maybe that's a way to capture the value that that changes. Maybe it's a a, a variable uh, price. Or there's a lot of kind of problems that that come from this that I don't really have the answer for. But what I do know is that what we're currently doing doesn't work. Let's just start there and be like, this isn't working. There's a lot of reasons why this doesn't work right now because we have a sort of a free model 
where you can get a free account on Spotify that's ad-based that is not pulling its weight. So all the paid subscribers are subsidizing that freemium model and, and the end result is that nobody gets paid. So like, so it's sort of dragging everything to the bottom. I think the freemium model should be an option that you could opt out from. And right now you don't, so you can't. So I, I would personally make a couple songs free and then have most of my catalog behind a paywall. And maybe that's not a consumer friendly. I don't know, but like we have to meet in the middle somewhere. I think we have to find a model that works for artists and, and the consumer. So like, for example, the argument that I, that I make is like, you know, if you, if you pay for a Netflix subscription, you don't get every movie ever made. But if you pay 15 bucks for Spotify, you get every album ever made, which is kind of crazy. It's a lot of work that goes into these albums. I mean, I think an anecdotal thought experiment illustrates your point pretty well. If I, you know, if there are other choices, right, there's competition in the market. But if it were the choice of Spotify or nothing, I would pay hundreds of dollars a month for Spotify rather than live for a month without music. There's a clear differential between the value and, and the cost. Yeah, I, I did the, the math. The, the average person consumes about 26 hours of music per week. And the amount you're paying for that, I, I think, um, ends up being about $3 a year or something like that. It ends up being like a super, super low number for the amount of value that, that, that you're mm-hmm. getting. So like, uh, again, like to, my, my point is really just we've been sort of devaluing music. I think music is more valuable. And we, we sort of fall in, into this argument that's like, oh, well, live music will make up for it or we'll, we'll sell some T-shirts. And it's like, I fight that because I've always believed that, yes, that can be a supplemental thing, but that is not where you're getting the value. You're getting value from recorded music. Like, I really think that the, the process of writing and recording music has value and, and it should be priced accordingly. It's intellectual property. It, has, it just has value. I don't know like, how else to put it. The system that we're in is just, it's sort of what I was saying. It's like opt-in. So it's either you accept the bad deal or you don't. Either you reach the majority of people and collect a little bit of money or, or you don't. It's kind of just a really difficult situation. And I think one of the other more difficult things about it is that it's like the people that are involved in this, it's like, I don't think they're malicious. I love the people that I work with in the music industry. Like everybody loves music. It's sort of just... I think we're all guilty of perpetuating it and there's no incentive to change it. So we're, we're sort of stuck on the optimistic side. I think we're, we're at a, a moment of, of like disruption, like where, where something can come in and really change things because I can say this for a fact. I don't know one single artist, like literally I know a lot of people, I don't know one single artist that is happy with, with how that is, how this is going. You're just waiting for the music industry's version of a Satoshi Nakamoto to come in and disrupt the status quo, so to speak, of the record labels, the way that person did it for fiat status quo. In, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm not even waiting for that. I'm like, I'm like trying to usher this in. I, I'm, I'm like actively trying to push this stuff forward because and talk about it because like if nobody even talks about it, then nothing's ever going to change. And I think I've felt a lot more emboldened lately uh, because... I mean, I think a lot of people have spoken up about the music industry. Finally, even Kanye West like posted his his yeah. record deal, and which, by the way, the the financials were different. But it, I essentially got the same deal, like same rates and stuff. So it's like if I'm getting the same deal as Kanye, I mean, there's something yeah. clearly messed up here. There's a lot of projects that are working on this. Maybe if I'll, I'll shout out ones like Audius, which is I, I think a really interesting project that is 
is trying to change this, at least one one of the main issues, which is pricing. So the, the sort of uh, ability or they're giving the artists the opportunity to price their own works. And that that is a new thing. And that's like a really big innovation in, in, in my view, which is crazy to think about because to me, that's so obvious. But I, I think it's sort of something to celebrate and they're already getting some traction. So is Audius a platform? Yes. So uh, Audius is essentially a decentralized platform. It's sort of a node-based thing where, you know, the tokens are like based on Ethereum, whatever, but uh, but it's sort of a node-based system where, you know, nodes host the music and sort of spread around. So it's a mix of storage. And I mean, it's some of it's sorted on IPFS. And so it's using kind of like a bunch of different decentralized protocols and it's fully open source. They have a pretty robust API. You can build on it. You can build your own application on it. They're actually launching a token on Friday. So it's actually going to be um, basically like given to the people that participated in it in it, and the artists. So it, it'd be sort of like community and artist run, which I think is is also like a really good approach. I think they have something like 750,000 monthly users. So definitely not small. It's very far from Spotify and SoundCloud and all that, but uh, but it's it's definitely growing pretty quickly. So I'm pretty optimistic about it. And my whole argument that I've made about these types of protocols is like, you have a really unhappy artist base and then you bring in a platform that works, it's functional, it's great, it's very artist friendly. Like, where do you think the artists are going to push their fans to? If they're getting paid more on Audius, that Audius thing is going to be at the top. You know what I mean? So I'm pretty optimistic about it. So runs the nodes? Anybody can run a node. So it's, it's sort of like similar to how a lot of blockchain systems work. I don't know if it's a permission thing. That, the technical side of it is a little bit beyond my, yeah. my understanding, but I think it's similar to many other blockchain projects where sort right. of a node-based system. So anytime I hear there's you know there's a new new platform, it's an it's an alternative, and then it's supposed to you know subvert the existing paradigm. I get a little skeptical because that's when I think, okay, it's just like another alternative that you know promises to become the hero they deserve. But then in the end, you know, over time, as they kind of gain mind share and kind of like stratify their position, they end up quartering the market. You know, is it same as how uh, what happened with Twitter? The direction that I'm sort of thinking with the types of problems that you've explained um, in the music industry is more towards like, like what, what sorts of protocols and like in what way can a truly peer to peer system with incentives built in, right, financial incentives built in to kind of sustain itself? and to sustain people keeping storage of these files, how can that happen? It's a really interesting problem. I totally hear you what you're saying about like sort of the node uh, infrastructure. I don't want to speak for the team specifically. I'm sure they could explain this much more eloquently <laughs> than I can. I think the hope is really to, it's not peer-to-peer per se, but it's basically it's somewhere on that, as, as far on, on that spectrum as you can be, where it's shared widely and across the world. I'd say there, there's going to be a spectrum of users. Maybe just the average user doesn't doesn't care about it, and then there's maybe the, the power user that maybe runs a node uh, and then collects fees on that, or you know that has the server space and the, can kind of do that. The, the other thing that I may, maybe I'll mention about them is um, like if you go to their website, you wouldn't even know it's crypto. I think that that was a really interesting take on it because it's sort of abstracting the technological interesting side of it. For like maybe people like us that appreciate that, but it's the end user doesn't care as long as it works, right? And if they know that they're getting paid fairly, 
I think that's ultimately what a lot of the users will, will care about. It's like sort of like, why do we have decentralization for a music application specifically? It's because every centralized service that came before eventually got pinned down by that incumbent industry that I, that I talked about. It happened with SoundCloud. I kind of alluded to this, but SoundCloud was, we had a real shot with SoundCloud. SoundCloud was like close to being the real independent player that didn't have, was sort of free of the shackles, basically. And in about 2014, that's when the lawyers really started to crack down on it. And they got stuck in all these weird licensing deals. I feel like a lot of people don't really know about this, but but SoundCloud, they couldn't enable monetization for a long time because they had to do sort of like a licensing deal with with a lot of these big companies. And these big companies essentially didn't. And so I, I was on a major label at the time. And I think I had something like 5 million followers on there. So it was a very big platform for me. Like, it's like, I really wanted to post my music on there because it's like, I'm reaching this massive audience, you know, it's good for my career. And I posted one of my tracks on there on SoundCloud in the middle of those negotiations. And they got really mad at me. They really came down on me and I kind of like held my ground and like refused to take it down. And I think that caused some issues for me. But my point is that they were basically using their power to sort of hold down this independent player that was centralized, that had a real shot, that got a, little, a lot of traction. And they, they sort of like held them down. And then Spotify, you know, the incumbent player started their play account, just started build yeah. from there. So there's a lot of shady stuff like that that happens behind the scenes. That I don't think a lot of people know about. SoundCloud um, was the obvious nail that could get hammered down by the incumbents. That's the whole purpose of this decentralization technology is that it, it has this cypherpunk ideal behind it, which is if it's really decentralized, if it's truly mm-hmm. decentralized and you cannot nail down a single entity, then you cannot shut it down. And that's, I think that is going to be the thing that takes over for content creators for this like content creation economy in the future, including not just musicians, but even like, you know, people in the porn industry, sex industry, right. sex work, like that, you know, that, that's like a whole nother thing on crypto Twitter on its, on its own. The next protocol that is introduced that actually works with a clean UI and abstracts away all the technical blockchain bullshit, that's going to be the thing that solves your guys' problem. I think so. I mean, if anything, at least a better option. I don't think the industry is going to go away or anything like that. But like, you know, we need a better option. The thing that I've been saying is like, we actually don't have a free market right now. It's sort of an illusion of a free market. It's going to take like some real competition for things to get better. For example, touring industry, like for live shows and all that, it's actually hyper competitive. And it actually generates about 80% of income for artists. So to me, that is sort of proof that if you apply a free market or, or a market dynamic and you let people compete, and that we find an equilibrium that works for artists and works for the industry and like the, I don't think the live touring industry, I mean, it has its problems, obviously, but it's not like a toxic relationship. It's like we work together. It's mm-hmm. symbiotic, you know, where artists get taken care of and the venues have profit and like it kind of works. You know, that to me is proof that if we can, we, we found something that works in the touring industry, but we still haven't found something that works everywhere else because it's highly mm-hmm. one sided. I would just like to see, if anything, at least a competitor that comes in and can challenge them, you know, system and make things more fair for artists. Like that's, I don't think that's too much to ask for. You know, I I think anything in moderation, you know, uh, like I think we'll find an equilibrium basically is is sort of my point. 
I just want to see this option flourish because like if it happens and it doesn't work, at least I've been proven wrong, but I want the option. Based on what I know about the technology that is available today, I do see this happening in the next two to three years. It will be ready and mature and content creators will be able to really monetize on their reputations in a fair mm-hmm. way. I'm very optimistic about it. I mean, COVID for uh, as terrible as it, it's been, it's actually been a turning point for a lot of creators because it was like, okay, no, we this isn't working. We have to figure something else out. Depend on live shows, right? You, that's right. Like, none of that anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and that was like one of the fair things in, in the music industry. So the fact that we lost that was like, then we're sort of reliant on this like mm-hmm. super toxic relationship that we have with the rest of the industry. So like I switched to Patreon, I switched to Twitch streaming, you know, to all this other stuff. And it's actually far more profitable than, than what I was doing before. It's totally possible. And it's just proof that, that this is just going to continue to grow. And we didn't even get into NFTs, but that's like a whole, that's like a whole thing, a whole new sort of paradigm for me as well, uh, which I'm really stoked about. If you could give an estimate of the size of this market, because in the early days of Bitcoin, people compared it to the size of the gold market, right? And so it was right. kind of like extrapolate the potential value of Bitcoin with that relationship. So yeah, what's the size of the market for, for the musician, the record label? So, How value do record labels extract? The argument that I've made is like, okay, so I think they make about, uh, I think it's the market size of the market is about 43 billion, something like that. So it's it's not tiny, but... I'd actually argue that they're so bad at their job that $43 billion for music, the value of music, think about how important music is to daily life, how pervasive it is, how it's everywhere. Think about how small that is. I mean, just like broadly speaking, $43 billion is nothing to what I think this is actually worth. But even if we're going to play on their terms, there's so much room to grow. I mean, $43 billion in terms of like, an economy of, of artists and, and all that. Like it, it, there's, a, I think there's a ton of room to grow. Like even f- beyond that, my argument is that, again, music is completely undervalued and is f- way, way, way bigger than, than what we're valuing it as. We just haven't found a good model to properly value it. At. There, there's one thing that maybe I, I want to talk about real quick. It's like, I, I did this project called Tape. So I want to do like a limited edition cassette tape for, like, I just put out an album a couple months ago and I wanted to do like an extremely limited 100 tapes. And I wanted it, to basically uh, be sold on a market. So so essentially, you couldn't actually buy the tape right away. You just buy the token, which gives you the option to redeem the tape. So the idea is that you bring some speculation into it. And we we listed it at 20 bucks. And in the first day, it went to 950. And uh, at one point, it hit $4,800. So like we had our own like little bubble for this tape in 2020. It's just crazy to me. Again, like applying markets to limited scarce goods yeah. to music. The thing that I like to say is like, th- this is completely untapped. We've been working with this like fixed price model for music for so long, like the $1 per song. Like I, I think the play, the play count is a terrible metric of value. You know, I want to challenge. Okay, the, the industry is saying that the play count is worth 0.0000 whatever cents. It was like, actually, no, it's worth a hell of a lot more. You're just not pricing it correctly. I just I want to challenge these things and, and show artists and show other people that there's a better way to do this. And maybe it's a little bit outside of the system and pretty experimental. And I don't know where this is going. But like, what option do we have? 
I think a lot of the success with different projects that I've had experimenting with all this stuff has is, is sort of been proof that that we've been mispricing music. That's the only conclusion that I can come to. Were you following the uh, what happened with Unisox? What Hayden was doing? It, it very much came from that. So there's okay. a couple of precursor projects to this, Unisox being one of them. And then St. Fame was another one where they sold this like long sleeve. I think it peaked at maybe $8,000 for... It's funny because I actually redeemed it. I had the... Uh, actual long sleeve and it's like oh this is like an eight thousand dollar long sleeve that i'm wearing it's kind of weird i obviously didn't pay that for it but you know what i mean like it's just yeah it they worth did it. That with um east denver t-shirts too yeah i talked to the organizer and then it's like somebody donated i forget how many ETH, 30 ETH or something for for one t-shirt and then you know vitalik wore it he went on stage and basically marketed the hell out of that thing everyone <laughs> wanted fomo and like <laughs> with like a buckle horn on it i love it Again, it's applying markets to culture. A lot of people are scared of that. Oh, it's sacred. It's culture. What world do you live in? Like, if we ignore that, we're just going to set ourselves up to fail and and let the predators come in and price things to their advantage, you know? So I, I think we should be engaged with capitalism and apply markets to, to culture and, and see what happens. You yeah. might be surprised, you know, like, I, I'm not saying that $4,000 is fair for a cassette tape, but like, there was actually a period of time where, so the price went way up and then came back down and went, you know, it kind of fluctuated a lot. There was like a period of like maybe a month sort of stabilized around 250 or something like that. And, and at the time it was like, well, I mean, I guess that's kind of fair. It's a limited to a hundred, 250 bucks for a tape. I mean, it's maybe a bit, a bit higher than what I expected, but like, Hey, I mean, the market kind of decided. So like, but the thing is like, if I came out and launched a cassette tape for $250, people would be like, you're insane. You're out of your mind. Like this is crazy. But because it was decided by a market and by speculators to some extent, then I feel like it found some proximity to its real value. And I think that's pretty awesome. I think that's really cool. Yeah, totally. I want to put you on, on Handshake. So so now be aware that this is happening, right? And you could just buy like, you know, your domain name. It's called like RAC. You know, if you're if you're down for hosting your own server or something and, and hosting your content on your own server and then, you know, transmitting your data through that, then mm-hmm. you kind of like build up a brand with with your own like top level domain name. I actually run my own servers here at my house. So maybe I, I probably can do that. If you yeah. run your server... And you were kind of plugged into this peer-to-peer network where you guys are sharing content together and you held like little torrents of information, that information being like pieces of music, right? And then mm-hmm. you share it amongst each other. And then you host your own domain. No, that'd be sick. I, it's so hard to get the REC domain no matter where I go. So early on, I was fairly involved in sort of the peer-to-peer worlds. Well, involved in, in the sense that I, I was like very much into torrenting and all of that stuff. But like, I actually see Bitcoin and a lot of this technology as sort of an evolution of that stuff. Oh, Um, yeah. First way to incentivize torrenting. Taking a sort of high-level look at it, there's all these people that are sharing information because it's what it is, just information, you know. It can be all kinds of information. But there was no way to sort of exchange value. It was like all these people doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, you know. Maybe there's a couple torrent servers that required you to to seed or whatever. but, But for the most part, People were just doing it because they wanted to. But like once you apply that and then put a value exchange on top of it, I think that's sort of like where kind of where we're at, like on a high level, you know, and obviously technologies are very different. But like, I think conceptually, 
it just seems like an evolution of that kind of peer-to-peer internet. So I- I'm stoked. I feel like like Web two is finally seeing its final days, and 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 we're kind of like entering the new world now. So yeah. I- I'm just excited about it. Yeah, in the future we could have just just like a UI layer, and you could have like an alternative version where you know, Jack can come in and say, "Now this is fake news." There is a way. Every node will have a, a DMCA interface. So like, it's not meant for copyright infringement or anything like that, but it happens on the node level. So the, the organization is more of a, they maintain the open source code. That's sort of their responsibility. But the node operators are, are responsible for, for complying with copyright laws. And, and there will be sort of an interface for them to do so. The, actually, a lot of the labels that have engaged with Audius, like are not stressed out about it at all because it works just like a lot of the other systems. But there's one key difference, which is they're not able to control the protocol level. And I think that's where a lot of the power dynamics are turned into like really negative situations. So that's just one key kind of distinction I want to make. Do you see these intermediaries being disintermediated with just technology? What other social factors do you see playing a role, like legal awareness, DRM, infra, or anything extremely disruptive? As far as the DRM goes, I don't think we're going to a DRM world. I find that DRM is more trouble than it's worth. I guess it maybe depends on what you mean by DRM. So, by the way, what we're talking about is digital rights management, which is sort of like copyright or or piracy protection. I would argue, and I've made this argument before, is that Piracy is not an actual problem. Piracy is a symptom of failing to deliver what the consumer wants. There's always going to be piracy to some extent, but I think most people, if they feel like they're getting a fair, you know, if if they're in a fair exchange, they will sort of default to that. And if it's a good experience, I think that's why, to some extent, why Spotify works, because on the, the consumer feels like they're getting their money's worth. Of course, the artists aren't. They've pretty much eradicated any semblance of piracy. I mean, piracy is just really a non-issue at this point. And I feel like they could even raise prices considerably and it still would cease to be uh, an issue. So that's maybe what I'll mention about DRM. So I, I, I don't think that DRM is where this is going to answer the question. It's, it's a great question. It's sort of like tricky to think about because this is more making predictions about where this is going. And I, I'll probably be like totally wrong about this. But there's a lot of intermediaries in the music industry right now that are they're so backwards that they're still being executed by paper, by people getting on the phone and writing something down on a piece of paper. Like there's still so much inefficiency in in this world because every single different company has siloed data. Nobody shares information. So for example, like if one agency is collecting royalties over here and one agency is collecting royalties over here, their information might not match, which means that then it goes into some weird dispute resolution, never gets paid. And then, so you could have even as inefficient as it is, it's even more so because there's not really like a good mechanism to collect all these royalties. So there's all kinds of problems that are caused by by the intermediaries, you know. So by creating this sort of layer that like this sort of standardization of data, I think would just be maybe would be just a technological breakthrough. And then, and then people could compete on that, like build on top of it. I think that that would be kind of an example of the technology making a huge impact versus just creating new platform or something, if that makes sense. Yeah, so we could cut out the corporate secretaries who are still working on their typewriters in 1970s technology. There's uh, there's sort of a a saying about the music industry, which is like, it's a whole bunch of lawyers with a little bit of music on the side. And that's kind of how a lot of it works. So thank you so much. It was great having you on. And I'm just going to close out this 
podcast interview with a little outro. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you feel the sun, nothing